Last week, we started our series on Genesis with three verses from chapter one. I worked out if we carry on at that rate, it would take us 29 years to finish the whole book. Um, So you'll be glad to know we're going to crack on at a slightly faster rate. Um, We're doing the whole of chapter one today from verse three. So uh, you might like to follow in Bibles or on the screen. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate the water water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it. And it was so. And God called the vault sky, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let the dry ground appear. And it was so. And God called the dry ground land and the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years. And let them be lights in the vaults of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He he also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea, and every living thing with which the water teems, and that moves about in it according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number, and fill the water in the seas, and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let, their, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea, and the birds in the sky, and over every, every, every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth, and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth, and all the birds in the sky, and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant, plant for food. And it was so. 
God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A few years ago, some friends lent us the first series of the TV drama Game of Thrones. You may not have seen it. You may have seen it. I wasn't too keen on the idea of watching it, so my wife, Nikki, decided to try out the first episode with her dad. The sniggers in the room um, are those people in, um, who've swiftly remembered the volume of violence and sexually explicit content in that first episode. Unsurprisingly, Nikki wasn't too keen on watching episode one again, but she gave me a brief summary of the plot lines, and we plodded on until the blood and guts got just too much for us. But I always struggled as a result of missing that first episode. I could never quite grasp the full implications of the story because I didn't know how it had started. For lots of Christians, I think it feels the same with the Bible. Because we don't always understand Genesis or have confidence in it, for reasons I'll explain in a moment, we don't fully grasp the rest of the plot. Indeed, it can be so for people who aren't Christians. In these coming weeks, we want to help you to grasp it. My purpose today is to help you to be able to understand this text so that you can read it by yourself, and if you're in a little church with others, And allow it to speak to your mind and your heart. And to do that, I've got a simple phrase that will help us to navigate our way through. It's one that's shouted on sports pitches, is seen on social media, and is heard in a song by a band called the Kaiser Chiefs. I won't say it because it might involve swearing. Um, So, so, OMG, I can't believe it. Um, Oh my... I can't believe it. Um, we'll, for the sake of this gathering and sensitive ears, we'll say, oh my goodness, I can't believe it. In all of those places that it's used, it expresses frustration, anger, sometimes excitement, and mostly disbelief. I want you to remember this phrase every time you come to Genesis 1. And I'll explain why now. Firstly, I can't believe it. For the better part of 1,900 years, the church received the creation account we just heard in Genesis 1 as the teaching of Moses. The early Christians thought that a man who spends that long time up a mountain with God is probably qualified to write about an event at which he wasn't present. Then a few challenges emerged. Firstly, evolution theory with Charles Darwin and latterly Richard Dawkins. Darwin's theory called into question both the length of the Earth's existence as described by Genesis and the notion that humans were created by God and not a species that evolved. Secondly, some biblical scholars began to argue that the evidence of when Genesis was written meant that Moses could not have been its author and that there appeared to be a few different strands of storytelling within the book that are woven together and therefore it can't be the work of one man. And then thirdly, physicists such as Stephen Hawking began working on the Big Bang Theory, not the TV program in case you're wondering, questioning whether the first part of chapter one of Genesis could possibly be true. Many who had previously presumed that Genesis was true now took the view, I can't believe it, 
And we have to be honest about that when we come to the text. We have to acknowledge that this is the world in which we live, that most people can't believe what's written. Some believe it's a myth. It contains no truth, but it's a nice story other than its poetry. Uh, sorry, some believe it's a myth. It contains no truth, but it's a nice poetry. Others believe it's, it's a nice story. Others believe it's poetry. So you've got this continuum. Myth, which side are you on? I'm looking at a screen. Myth, poetry, history. Okay, does that make sense? So poetry is when you, you kind of think that it's giving artistic expression to something. And others maintain that it's historically accurate still. Some have located more conciliatory places, such as that between poetry and myth, where it's believed that Genesis is a myth with meaning. Others have located a place between poetry and history, holding that this has more truth than we could ever know. My job today is to help you to get into that left-hand half, or to consider what it might mean to be in that left-hand half of that diagram. The right-hand half, I would argue, is dangerous because it leaves you picking and choosing what's true in the Bible and what's not. At what point, as you read through the Bible, does it become true? And the further you get towards the end of the Bible, the easier it is to find stuff not to believe in. Resurrection isn't that easy to believe in. Jesus coming again in the second return isn't that easy. Some of you are still saying, I can't believe it. Um, That's okay. Um, You may be saying it later, but let's carry on for the moment. The other part of our key phrase for understanding this text is OMG. So let's start with O, and I've added in an extra O for the purposes of um, today's um, uh, explanation, and and you'll catch that in a moment. Um, uh, Verses 3 to 25 of Genesis chapter 1, you might like to have them open in front of you um, uh, or on your phone. God knows whether you're on Twitter or not. Um, And um, uh, it's the primary account of creation prior to the humans coming on the scene. So 3 to 25 is the account of creation up until humans come on the scene. In these verses, we see God bringing order out of what was formless and empty. We see things being separated and gathered in in one translation, and in the translation we had today, it was according to their kind. Um, We see evening and morning. We see that God creates in day one um, uh, what he then fills in day four, and what he creates in day two, he fills in day five. And what he creates in day three, he fills in day six. So there is an order to how the account presents creation that speaks of a basic order to creation, which we understand even now as we encounter the world. Um, Just to give a tiny example of that, um, when I see planes that go on water, I think, what's that about? You know, the planes that land on water. You think, well, what, you're meant for the sky. Not, anyway. Um, there's, a, there's an innate sense of order in how we look at things that's put into us because of how creation was um, set up by God. As well as God bringing order to creation, a picture emerges of creation as ornate. Well, beautiful would be a better word, but it doesn't start with O. Um, uh, so you're not, you might not remember it as easily. In the poetry of these verses emerges a beauty. We find the text giving voice not just to the simple beauty of nature, but the account points to the intricacy and 
interweaving patterns of creation which we see. And of course, um, uh, the vast nature of creation, uh, which uh, is vast is spelled H-U-G-E in order to help you to remember it. Um, the sense of size in the text is also deepened in contemporary readership as our understanding of space has grown. Preaching on creation, the pastor Tim Keller points out that if our galaxy, the Milky Way, were reduced to the size of North America, then our solar system would be the size of a coffee cup and Earth would be a speck in that cup. And there are a hundred billion galaxies, as the song and the scientists attest. Creation is huge. And we cannot but fail to see it in this text. And yet comes the astonishing truth of Psalm 8, that this is all the work of his hands. This is all the work of his hands. The universe in its enormity is a model to him. So as you come to these verses in the text, remember the word, oh, because it will hopefully help you to grasp its meaning, but also to think of the vast implications of what is being said. Creation, after all, must tell us something about the creator. For some of us, these verses are a challenge to avoid thinking of the God of the universe as our spiritual assistant. Moving on to verses 26 and 30 of chapter 1, I would encourage you to read these verses with the word my in mind. In these verses, we have the creation of the first humans, named later as Adam and Eve. Creations, Christians have read these verses both as history and as giving expression to a story in which we see ourselves. As a result, these are key verses for the Christian understanding of God and humanity because they tell us about our relationship with God. Not all of it. We'll find out more in Genesis 2 and 3. But if you miss chapter 1, you've missed a vital component and it will make the New Testament harder to understand. Whilst the earliest Christian thinkers paid attention to the inference to the Trinity in verses 26 and 27, so you have let us make, not I'm going to make, but let us make. And then you have um, mankind was made in his image. So you have a plural and a singular in reference to the Godhead. Um, They were also keen, the early Christian thinkers, to draw attention to the implication that there is something in all of us that reflects the image of God. There is something in all of us that reflects the image of God. Despite the enthusiasm for this concept, it has been very hard to pin down exactly what that means. It's clear from elsewhere that it doesn't mean that we're all children of God. You just have to read further on in Genesis and all over the New Testament to understand that. To jump further ahead in this plot, it means that whilst all have sinned, everyone is capable of godly acts. In other words, you don't have to believe in God to show the maker's name in your behavior. It's why many of our friends who are not Christians are really good people. They're made by a good God and they've lived in environments where that goodness has been pulled out of them. 
But more than just our behavior, there is something about our factory settings that speaks of our relationship with God. Yet so many today struggle to grasp this truth. Countless teenagers, particularly girls, are scarred by projections of other images into which they seek to conform. Many have emerged into adulthood, and it may be that you're in this category today, deeply damaged by these experiences. And some here feel like parenting teenagers into healthy, sim- healthy self-image is just an impossible task. The invitation of the text is for us to be able to say to God, my image reflects your image. My image reflects your image. Evolutionary biologists might say that our image is just a mutated set of genes, and the physicist might say, you're an accident. But God says, I made you in my image, and he asks us to say back to him, my image reflects your image, and to ponder that mystery and its meaning in our lives. As well as my image reflects your image, my stands for my responsibility to steward your creation. It's my responsibility to steward your creation. When we see ourselves in Genesis 1, we see that we are instructed to be fruitful, to increase, to subdue the earth, to treat it as ours, but not to destroy it. And it looks like we're not doing so well on that one. One Scandinavian philosopher pointed out that while science has been able to identify the climate crisis we face in great detail over the last 30 years, it hasn't been able to affect the necessary moral change that religion might have mobilized. Often the conversations around an adequate response to climate change, whether they're in the coffee shop or the pub or the park or at the school gate, they oscillate between the responsibility of the individual and of big corporates and government. Whilst both of those places are significant places of responsibility, I believe that greater momentum can be gained as small communities of people grow in their collective responsibility. I'm delighted, genuinely delighted, and I don't often pick out people in my talks, but I'm delighted about reach and under Joe Masters' leadership. Um, the little church, that little church um, has um, restarted, and they're calling themselves Fairground. Um, for those who are in Fairground, a community of people living justly and responsibly in God's creation. Um, I'm praying that these guys are going to show us and many others a way of living that is compelling, that can be passed on amongst small communities, and be part of a bigger answer that God is building up through His church. Pray for them. No pressure. So that's my, and that leads us on to verse 31. Oh my goodness. God saw all that he made and it was very good. In this verse, we see the very heart of God. God's goodness leads him to create and to create in goodness. This week, something happened to me um, that, that led me to the conclusion that a friend had wronged me. Um, and um, as we spoke on the phone, I was reminded of, of their goodness. And as we untangled the misunderstanding, we remembered um, what had built our friendship in the first place. Because of a faulty image of God, 
many of us have moments of suspecting that he isn't good. It's then only natural to give up on Genesis because it's likely to persuade us further that God isn't good, especially if we don't have a healthy way of reading it. What turns out to be true and what I hope will be true for all of us is the further we push into this wonderful text, the more of his goodness we see. And furthermore, we see the gap that emerges between his goodness and ours, a gap that we created, and a gap that in Jesus is closed. In Jesus, we see the continued goodness of God in a Savior willing to take our place in death so that we can be restored to our factory settings. Dear friends, as we grasp this first part of the story of Genesis, we have the opportunity to travel from a place of cynicism to a place of wonder, where we say not in disbelief, but in worship, oh my God, I can't believe it. Amen.